morning. Our scripture reading for today will be taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, uh, reading from verses 18 through 23. Again, that's Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 18 through 23. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, um, you can turn to page 170. It's page 170 in the Pew Bibles. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from, from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. It's my privilege this morning to announce our guest speaker for Family Day, uh, Scott Ballard. Scott is a good friend of mine. He grew up in Middle and West Tennessee. He is a graduate of Freed. Uh, he mentioned to me earlier he didn't know that... Uh, He'd have so many familiar faces in the audience this morning. Uh, he has a B.A. in communication. Uh, he also has a B.S. in education and English. He has taught and coached at Good Pasture Christian School, Jackson Christian School, and Chester County High School, which is in Henderson, Tennessee. Uh, since 2002, he has been in, at Good Pasture uh, coaching football, uh, teaching English and Bible. Uh, I want you all to realize that he is a football coach, and at some point during this lesson, he's going to yell at us. So I want you all to, to be prepared for that. Presently, he's a minister at Birdwell Chapel, and before this, he was the youth minister at Old Hickory Church of Christ. Uh, he is married to Malika. They've been married for 11 years, and they have two beautiful little girls Abby, who is seven, and Allie, who is six, and they're going to be with us at second service this morning. I also wanted to mention uh, Scott's father has been a, the minister of the gospel for many years. He graduated from the Memphis School of Preaching. He preached for several congregations in Michigan and Tennessee, uh, and I think a lot of you are familiar with the Bemis congregation in Jackson. He was over there uh, for, for over 20 years. Uh, without any uh, further ado, I'll let Scott come up. Good morning. What a blessing it is for me to be here. I've been looking forward to this for some time. and uh, As David mentioned, I was surprised at the number of familiar faces. I, I knew there would be good pasture faces here, but I was Surprised to see some, some Fried Hardeman faces, uh, some old Hickory faces, uh, so many of you that I've known and loved over the years, and uh, uh, this truly is a family day, um, and to, to celebrate family is, is one of my favorite things. Um, nothing on this earth means more to me than my family, and to know that family is one of those things that God ordained, to know that it's godly to love my family as well makes it so much more special. Um, now, David said that uh, I may yell at you. At, at Old Hickory years ago, there was a, a little boy that used to come to the, uh, to the football games, and uh, his mother would say, look, there's, there's Coach Ballard. And then at church, she would say to him, well, go say hello to Scott. And he thought for the longest time that Scott and Coach Ballard were two different people. And I told him they are. They are. Scott is much more lovable than Coach Ballard, and 
That's who's here with you today. Scott came today. We try to leave Coach Ballard at school and at home, and, and we try not to bring him home very often. My family will be here um, for Sunday school and for the second service. I look forward to you meeting them simply because you will like me better when you meet them, I promise. Um, they are definitely the better side of me. They, uh, they are getting ready this morning and will be here very soon. I didn't do a very good job of, of giving my biographical information to David. Uh, one thing that I forgot is my in-laws. Now, I don't know what it says about your family day guest speaker when he forgets his in-laws. There's probably a sermon there somewhere as well. But um, my father-in-law is um, a missionary uh, in Kenya and has been there, uh, been in some part of Africa for the better part of 40 years. Um, I understand that you all here support, to some extent, the Timothy Hill Youth Ranch uh, in New York. Uh, Mr. Hill, the father of Timothy, is actually who baptized my father-in-law. So we have that connection together as well. Again, it is so wonderful for me to be here. I, I am so happy to, to, to have this opportunity, to honored to be invited. And the theme that I've chosen for today is what's right with the family. It doesn't take long to look around and see what's wrong in our society with family. But what I want us to think about is what's right. What is it that's positive about our families? I wonder this morning, which family you most identify with? One of the things I did in preparation for this is I, I started thinking about some of the iconic television families that you might relate to. Maybe your family is... The family where dad works outside of the home, where mom is a homemaker and you have school-age children. Maybe your family is one where mom and dad both work outside the home. Maybe even you've been blessed to be a prosperous family and you're making it work even through uh, the, the dual uh, careers of mom and dad. Maybe you are a single parent there's my favorite single parent. Maybe you're a single parent trying to raise a child and work, or maybe children even, and work outside the home. More and more we see blended families where there are stepbrothers and stepsisters, a stepmother and a stepfather, again, working to, to make their home what God would have it to be. Perhaps you're living with an in-law. There are challenges that go with living with your in-laws, um, and perhaps you know what that is. Maybe times are hard at your house. It could be that with the economy as such as it is, it's, it's difficult to make ends meet, but still there are good times in your home. Maybe you live in a, a family situation where there are no children. Maybe you live in a family situation where there are many children. Maybe you live in a family situation where there are adopted children. Whatever your family situation, it doesn't matter. Maybe your family is just maybe a little bit different from everybody else's family in the neighborhood. Now I hope you've recognized all of these television families. The beautiful thing is about family is that it doesn't matter what kind of family you are. Families that are together and families that are trying to do what is right have been created by God. God said in Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He separated the heavens from the earth. He separated the night from the day and he gave each a light to govern it. He separated the land from the water and he created all of the plant life and all of the vegetation he created all the living creatures. He created man in his own image. And man, he looked at us and he created us first. And he looked at us and he said, after having created everything else where he said, this is good, man, he created us and he looked at us and he said, I think I can do better. This is not complete. I need something to go with this man that I have created to make him whole. And so he put us to sleep and from our rib he created woman. And he said, now this is complete. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply. You want to know what's right with the family? 
What's right with the family is it belongs to God. What's right with the family is it is a creation of God. God invented families. And aren't we thankful? Psalm chapter 68 and verse 6 says, God put the lonely in families. So this morning I ask, what makes a Christian family? Is having a Bible prominent in the home make a Christian family? What about praying at mealtimes and at bedtime? What about going to church? Maybe your family goes to church on a regular basis. Is that what makes a Christian family? Well, certainly all of these things are important. All of these things are necessary. But I suggest this morning that there is much more that is eternally important when we begin to consider what makes a Christian family. I suggest to you this morning that what makes a Christian family is an honest desire to honor God in all that we do. In everything that our family is and that we are about, we honor God. And that spirituality must be the number one goal in our family. I believe there are three things that are staples in every Christian home. The first one is preparation. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 through 23, which was just read in your hearing a few moments ago, indicates to us, friends, that there is no substitute for education in the scripture in our homes. If your spiritual education and the spiritual education of your children is left up to the Sunday school, if their education is left up to the preacher or the youth minister or even a Christian school, then I'm afraid they're going to fall short. There must be spiritual training in our homes for all who live there. It's vitally important for us as husbands and fathers and grandfathers. It's important for you as wives and mothers and grandmothers. But especially it's important for our children. If our children are to believe that the spiritual training that they receive from these other sources has any validity, they must see it at home constantly. They must see the importance in the life of mom and dad to honor God in our families. There must be preparation. Secondly, I suggest there must be pointing. And by pointing, we mean leadership. Scripture says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians chapter 5. Man, we have been given by God the responsibility to lead our families spiritually. Not to suggest inequality. Those who are enemies of the church will suggest that, that the church that Christ died for, that Christ established, would put women in a place that is inferior. That's not what God has done at all. This passage does not suggest inferiority. What this passage suggests is God's plan for what's right in the family. And now the question is, are we courageous enough to live accordingly, men? But what if the husband will not lead spiritually? Well, the Bible deals with that too. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, might be won by the conduct of their wives. Again, God gives a plan for spiritual leadership. And then there's Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. One of the greatest things that we can do for our children is to lead them spiritually. One of the greatest things that we can do is to lead them spiritually by teaching them to obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. I recall just a few years ago, I, my, my daughter Abby had done something that she knew wasn't right and she knew she shouldn't have done. And so we sent her to her room and she threw the biggest fit and she was screaming and crying. And so I went upstairs and I was mad and I, I, I wanted to, to discipline her, but I was, 
I was too angry. And so what I did was I calmed myself a minute and I, I made her memorize this passage of Scripture. Now, she doesn't always understand it. She doesn't always obey it, but she knows it. And I think it's important that we teach our children. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. You know what I find interesting about that verse? Children are not commanded to obey parents in order to please parents. We confuse that sometimes. As parents, I, I want to be happy. As, as a father, I want my daughters to obey because I want to be happy. That's not what Scripture says at all. Scripture says it's important that we lead our children, teaching them to obey because it's pleasing to God. And that is more important. We do not lead properly when we refuse to teach our children to obey. With this... Our children need to see that God and all things godly are always top priority in our lives. That is so important. Our children need to know that things that are of a spiritual nature are always the first thought in our minds. I know what a sports crazy area of the country this is. I'm a victim of it. I'm I'm guilty of it myself. and, And I'm crazy about sports and I'm crazy about football and I'm crazy about other things and I see firsthand the the commitment level it takes to to play sports at a high level I I see sometimes the 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 dedication that we make to to athletics especially when our children are concerned but what I know is that we cannot allow these things the, the pushing of our children, whether it's in athletics or even academics or any of the hobbies that we have, we cannot allow these things to even appear for a moment to be more important than godly things. The third thing that I think is a staple in every Christian home is punishment. Now, I, I use the word punishment because it begins with a P and it follows in my outline, but I guess a better word would have been discipline or even self-discipline. There are many things that I would like to do that I know deep down would not be best for my Christian walk. There are things that I would like to do, places I would like to go that, that I know would not benefit my family. And so I recognize that those things are contrary to what God wants me to do. The Apostle Paul experienced the same thing, and he had this to say, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, uh, lest when I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. Friends, I'm of the opinion that we can do more harm than good to the cause of Christ when we are not willing to discipline ourselves to be what God expects us to be. Especially when we're considering our role in the family. Family roles have become so confused in our recent past. In the past few years, roles in the family have become blurred and confused by our society, but not by God. God continues to show us what a husband and a father should be. God still tells us what a wife and a mother should be. God's word continually shows us how children ought to behave and respect and honor their parents. None of that has ever changed in spite of what society says. There is a somewhat different kind of discipline that every Christian home needs. He that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him punishes him. The wise man said in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24. Again in Proverbs we read, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. In a generation past, perhaps there was punishment that bordered, maybe even crossed the line into abuse. But the current generation seems to have gone to the other extreme, the other direction. There are professionals who will say that 
Perhaps we are hurting our children psychologically or or mentally because uh, we physically punish our children. I'm not a a trained psychologist, but I do know what God says. And God says that discipline with our children is essential. To teach them to obey. And after all, it's not about the punishment. It's about holding our children accountable, isn't it? Teaching them what is right and what is wrong. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded them. Jesus said, uh, we see that as the great commission, but doesn't it apply to our children as well? Before I had children of my own, I was a big believer in other people spanking their children. Oh, I was all for it. You know, when, when other people's kids would misbehave, I would say to myself, why don't they just spank those kids and, and straighten them up? And then I had two little girls of my own. And now I'm all about my wife spanking my children. <laughs> and I will confess to you that she is very good at it. Um, and I am not. They look at me with those big blue eyes and I have trouble. That's why when it's my turn to spank, I try not to look them directly in the eye. And I've had to do it, and it hurts, but it has to be done. I heard Oklahoma football coach Bob Stoops one time say, behavior is either taught or allowed. Friends, I'm afraid we are allowing our children to behave rather than teaching them to behave. There's one thing that I have heard for many years and I'm experiencing now, and that is we cannot be afraid to let our children be mad at us. Oh, my children are mad at me occasionally. I'll relate to you a little story briefly, if I may. My, my older daughter, Abby, um, she, both girls love to have a story before they go to bed. That's their favorite thing, and, and really they, they sometimes refuse to go to sleep without a story. One night we, we sent Abby to, to bed. We told her, brush your teeth, put away your toys, and put on your pajamas and get in bed, and, and I'll be right there. Well, she played and she dilly-dallied and she didn't do what she was supposed to do. And so her punishment for that night was no story. Daddy's not going to tell you a story tonight. Well, she was mad. Now, let me pause there and say, at that time, she was in kindergarten at Good Pasture in the Little Red Schoolhouse. She had Mrs. Wanda Lovell, who many of you know, and she is a, just a, a beautiful lady. And we love her. Our, our younger daughter has her now. But every night it was Abby's practice to thank God for Miss Lovell. Now, put her to bed, no story, she was mad. I said, Abby, say your prayers. She said, I'm mad. I said, I know, say your prayers. She said, dear God, thank you for this day. Please tell Daddy to tell me a story. Thank you for Miss Lovell, Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was her prayer. She was mad. I told that story to my dad, and my dad said, well, I hope you told her a story to let her know that God answers prayers. Well, she learned that day that sometimes God says no. (laughs) The word discipline comes from a word that means to make a disciple, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. But besides these three things, in order to honor God and our families, In order to make spirituality a goal in our families, there's one other thing that I believe that we need, and that is fellowship. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need each other. Why? I'll tell you why. Because my spouse is not perfect. She's not. And neither is hers. And I need help remembering that sometimes. You see, forgiveness is the key to honoring God in our marriages. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. I don't know if Paul had in mind marriages when he penned those words through inspiration, but I think it applies, don't you? Husbands, I think that passage about being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving applies To us, I know it applies to the wives. There was some marriage wisdom that was given from a third grader when he advised, become a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take the trash out. Forgiveness is a key to honoring God in our marriage. On the other side of that same coin then is repentance. 
James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed in chapter 5 and verse 16. One thing to remember about repentance, and that is past acts are forgivable, not ongoing transgressions. And as I think about my spouse not being perfect, and as I think about her spouse not being perfect, I ask myself the question, why is it so important then to honor my wife? It's important not only for my relationship with her, but honoring my wife is also important for my relationship with God. Peter said this in his first epistle in chapter 3 and verse 7, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, listen, that your prayers be not hindered. I honor my wife because I love her. But I also honor her because I want to have that power of prayer, that connection to God. And God says, without that, it's impossible. The second reason why we need each other is because I'm raising children and I need your help. There's nothing more satisfying than to know that there's somebody else who's going through what I'm going through. There's somebody else that's been there. One of the reasons that I like David Minton so much is because he has two beautiful daughters just like I have. And he has a beautiful wife, just like I have. And so when I struggle at home, I can look to him and say, man, you've been there. What did you do? How did you make it? How did you get through this? He's been there. You know, you you have people like that. You are someone like that for someone else. Friends, we need each other because we are raising children. When a Christian parent has a child slam a door in his face in anger or a, a child who refuses to, to speak or worse yet yells out, I hate you to a parent. A Christian parent needs to be able to call another Christian parent and say, tell me I'm doing the right thing. Tell me she doesn't really hate me. When a Christian parent has a child make a destructive decision, we need somebody to turn to with a godly perspective that can say, I've been there. You can make it. When a child says, everybody else gets to, or so-and-so's mom and dad let them, I need to know I'm not the only one out there being the bad guy. Friends, we need each other. We need each other also because of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, which says, Be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. There's a picture of my children with some of their friends. That's not bad company. I don't want you to go away thinking that. But we kept our children. My wife stayed at home with our children for six years apiece because we wanted to instill in them good habits, good morals, good character. But now my kids are in school with your kids and kids just like yours. My wife and I are not the only influence on their lives anymore. I need you. My kids want to fit in. My kids want to have that feeling of acceptance. They want to know that they have friends at school. And I want them to have friends that come from godly homes. I need you. And then this is the hardest one. There are boys. There are boys in our future. I've been praying for a long time for the parents of the boys who are going to come knocking on my door one day to take my most prized possession and put it in a car and drive away. I've been praying for those families. Maybe if you have a young son, maybe I've been praying for you and you don't know it. Most of all, I've been praying for that one boy who will come one day and never go away. That's important to me. That's important to me. This is why we take our children to church camp. This is why we take our children not just to our VBS at Birdwell's Chapel, but this is why we take our children to other VBSs. This is why we take our children to Horizons at Fried Hardeman. This is why we bring our children to family days. This is why we send our children to Christian school. Somebody might say to me, well, Scott, you're, you're sheltering your children. You better believe I am as long as I can. 
Because I want them to be shocked when they hear bad language. I want them to be shocked when they encounter sin of of any kind. And in order for that to happen, friends, I need you. I need you to be the Christian parents that we're trying to be. We're not perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect, but we need each other. A great deal of what they will become will be determined by the people with whom they associate. Parents, we need each other. We need what is right about Christian families. Finally, what is right about the family? It's prayer. I'd like to close our lesson this morning with a story, if I may. There was a shipwreck. There were only two survivors, and they both swam to a deserted island. They agreed that there was nothing left for them to do but pray. And to to see whose prayer was most effective, they separated. One went to one side of the island. The other man went to the other side of the island. The first man prayed for food. The next day, he saw a fruit-bearing tree on his side of the island. The other side of the island remained barren. After a week, the first man was lonely and he prayed to God for a wife. The next day, there was another shipwreck and there was one survivor and it was a beautiful young lady who swam to his side of the island. On the other side of the island, there was nothing. Soon, the first man prayed for a house and for clothes and for more food and almost like magic, the next day it appeared. The second man had nothing. Finally, the first man prayed for a ship to rescue he and his wife. And the next morning, just like clockwork, there was a ship that he saw approaching his side of the island. He considered the other man unworthy of being rescued. And so the man boarded the ship with his wife and decided to leave the second man on the island. As the ship was about to leave, the first man heard a booming voice from heaven asking Why are you leaving your companion? The man answered, My blessings are mine alone, since I was the one who prayed for them. His prayers were all unanswered, and so he does not deserve anything. You are mistaken, the voice rebuked him. He had only one prayer, which I answered. And if it were not for that prayer, you would not have received any of the blessings that you received. Tell me, the first man answered, What did he pray for that I should owe him anything? He prayed that all your prayers would be answered. Friends, for all we know, our blessings are not the fruits of our prayers alone, but those of another praying for us. I hope that you're praying for me and my family. As I pray for you and your family, as we pray together for families across our country to be what is right about the family. What's right with the family? The answer is everything. Everything that brings honor to God and makes spirituality the number one goal in our family lives. It could be this morning that you are not right with God. And everything about your family is not bringing honor to God. It could be that as a father, you're not the spiritual leader you should be. Or as a mother, as a wife, you're not what you know you should be. Or as a child... You're not honoring God by obeying your parents. This morning we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. To anyone who needs to respond to him, whether to put on your Lord in baptism, to know through your study of God's word that you have repented of your sins and you're ready to confess the beautiful name of Jesus Christ before this audience and to be buried with him in baptism. Or if you've done that and you know that you're not honoring God with your life and you're ready to do that again, to renew the commitment that you once made to your first love, then won't you come to Him as together we stand and sing. Down there, or I could come back up here, I, I rather jokingly say sometimes to the congregation at Birdwell's Chapel, the difference between Sunday school and preaching is that when I preach, I stand up here and you don't talk. When we have Sunday school, I'll stand down there and you can talk. Um, if you have a comment during Sunday school, by all means, speak up. But I'm going to stand up here and And uh, I look forward to this time we have together. My family has arrived. That's uh, a a relief to me. And and as I told you in the the morning uh, lesson, if if you get a chance to meet them, you'll think more of me, I promise. I look forward to you getting a chance to meet them. Uh, You'll also notice that I'll say less about my wife in this service. 
uh, since she is here than I did in the first service as well. So um, thank you for the introduction. I appreciate that. I uh, am a very blessed individual to be able to work where I work with uh, the school at Good Pasture and with the church at Birdwell Chapel. Um, I get a chance to be with Christian people constantly and with with young people, uh, and, and I just enjoy that so much, and I'm such a blessed person. And, and I get the chance to see different families. I, I get a chance to be a part of families, uh, perhaps more intimately in a church setting, uh, but also in, a, in, in the school setting as well, especially for the, the young men that I coach and, and the, the, the people that I teach. Uh, sometimes I get to know things about families and, and to... Uh, to get to know uh, some of the young men's parents and, and brothers and sisters. And, and so while I've not been a, a, a family man for very long, meaning that I've only been married 11 years, I have been exposed to many kinds of, of families in, in various, um, uh, various situations, uh, some uh, wonderful situations, others very troubling situations. And I see some of the trends that go on in our society as far as the family is concerned. And so when I ask the question this morning, what is right with the family, sometimes that's a hard question considering some of the latest available statistics. For the first time in history, married couples find themselves in the minority in the state of Tennessee Newly released census data shows that 48% of households in the state are headed by a husband and wife couple. The rest are single, unmarried couples, or divorced parents. What we're finding is this is no longer a country that is dominated by uh, the nuclear family, meaning dad and mom and the kids. The married population has been on the decline for years, the national Average, the national rate dropped over 15% in the last decade. Now, when I read that, I thought, well, that includes California, so those numbers are probably skewed a little bit. But then I read a little closer and found out what's going on closer to home. There are counties in the state of Tennessee where, uh, the, where marriages are still in the, in the majority. Uh, Sumner County, which is where I preach, for example, Uh, 57% of households are headed by husband and wife couples, but that's down from 61% just a few years ago. Friends, if marriage in the Bible Belt, right here in Middle Tennessee where we live, if marriage is declining at such an alarming rate, we have to take a very serious look at at our future and the future of our families and ask the very sobering question, What's right with our families? And what's right with the future of our families? When doing the research on these statistics, I found these particular quotes that I thought were alarming, to be honest. The trend has definitely gone away from marriage, one individual says. Another says marriage is less of a necessity and more of a personal choice these days. And then one researcher is quoted as saying, This is the result of a 30-year experiment into whether fathers are an optional accessory in the raising of their children. Now, that scared me to death. That scares me to think that in Middle Tennessee, fathers are considered by many as optional accessories to raising children. You notice, I'm sure, that there's no mention of what God intended the family to be. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that single parents cannot be faithful Christians, that couples who are scripturally divorced can't raise Christian families. I I know and I understand that that single parents and blended families and and all of the families that we, we talked about in the lesson this morning can be faithful Christians and raise Christian families. We have many in our little country church where I preach it. At Birdwell's Chapel, we have many in in those similar situations, but I think if you ask them, they'll tell you very honestly, that's not the ideal. So how did we get there? How did our country, forget our country for a minute, how did our state, how did our communities in, in Middle Tennessee get in such a mess? I wonder this morning, what is your view of what is right for the future of the family. And does it matter? 
what you think as an individual? Is our family's future so bleak that it's beyond repair? Well, I'm here to suggest this morning that it does matter how we approach our future in regard to our family and in every aspect of our Christian lives. Friends, if you and I as individuals abdicate our responsibility in the areas of self and family and government and economics, in business and in education and in the church, and, and we could go on and on, then we can expect more of the same kind of decline in our society that we've experienced in the last 25 years. The Christian's view of the future determines how he lives and works in the present. If we view our society as one that is doomed to never again be a Christian nation, then we shouldn't be surprised at the outcome that we, that we get. We shouldn't be surprised when large numbers of families are, are tearing apart. We, we shouldn't be surprised when the rate of husband and wife couples raising families is on the decline. We shouldn't be surprised when young people leave the church, even if they grew up attending faithfully. If we abdicate our responsibilities, if we view society as doomed and there's nothing we can do about it from this point forward, then we will continue to get the results that we've gotten. For generations, Christians have believed that the future should be considered only in terms of heaven, the judgment, and the second coming of Christ. Now let me make sure you hear this. There are no greater concerns than those. Understand that I'm saying this morning there is no greater concern than heaven and the judgment and the second coming of Christ. But it is my suggestion this morning that if we are to find what is right with the family, we need to spend enough consideration to the time leading up to those events. Remember the Apostle Paul rebuked the Thessalonian brethren for ceasing to work simply because of the possibility of the Lord's immediate return, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Lord may return today. The Lord may return this week. He may return this month. He may not return in our generation. We found out several weeks ago, you may recall, where there were people who were quitting their jobs, they were selling their businesses because they just knew that the world was going to end, that the second coming was, was imminent. It was coming on a certain date. Well, God proved himself faithful again, didn't he? When he said that no one knows the time or the date. No one on this earth really knows. So friends, what we learn from that is we should not stop from doing our best to make this world, which ultimately is going to be destroyed by fire, but to make this world a better place for Christian families to exist. If our future is going to hold anything for us, let us continue to work. During this time, there's an old saying that says, you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. Considering our world is the sinking ship because of its inevitable destruction, Jesus commands us to continue working until the end. Remember what Jesus commanded in the parable that he told in Luke chapter 19. In verse 13, after the master had divided ten pieces of money among his ten servants... His instructions were, do business with them until I return. You remember the parable of the talents where Jesus had divided, his, or the, the, the master rather had divided his talents among his three servants. And the only one that was condemned was the one who was afraid to work. Oh, the five talent man, the, the two talent man both received the same blessing from the master. The number of talents that you have doesn't matter to God. What you do with them is what matters. And to be afraid to work, to be afraid to prepare for the future, especially when we're considering the future of our families, to be afraid is simply unacceptable to the master. The Christian's view of the future determines how he lives, how he plans, and how he works now for the future. Even during Israel's captivity under Babylonian rule, which was no doubt that nation's darkest hour, the people were told to plan for the future. Take your Bibles with me, if you will, and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. 
Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read together verses 4 through 6. And then verse 11. In the context of God's people about to go into captivity, the prophet says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Listen, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that they may be increased there and not diminished. Verse 11, the prophet says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Prepare. Even though there are bad things in your future, even though there's, there's danger, even though there's negativity in your future, and, and, and some of it is unavoidable, still, the Lord says, prepare. The Lord says, work and plan for the future. God's words seem contrary to what these people saw going on all around them. Destruction, captivity awaited the nation, yet God commanded them to prepare for the future. In spite of every pessimistic view, much like the the statistics that we began our lesson with this morning, God wanted the people's desires and hopes to be future-directed. And that's where he wants us. To be future-directed, knowing that heaven is our goal, knowing that the second coming of Christ is the most important thing on on our calendar in the future, we continue to work. To make our lives here for our Christian families better in view of those things. We find and we do what is right rather than focusing on what is wrong. The psychological benefit of such a mindset does much to spur the church of Jesus Christ to to greater activity in the kingdom. A preoccupation with defeat brings defeat. There's no question. When a team thinks that they are defeated, they're defeated. When a, th- a team thinks that they cannot w- lose, when, a, when there's a team that believes we cannot be beaten, well, that's not always realistic, but they've got a better chance, don't they? Why would anyone wish to build for the future of his family when there's no hope for the family on this earth? Who would invest in a losing proposition? Why would anybody decide to establish a godly home a godly school, a godly business, or a civil government when all such institutions seem doomed despite our best efforts. Friends, we must not have such a defeatist attitude. We are, after all, soldiers of the cross. We are servants of God. We're winners. In a contest, the winner of that contest is is often undetermined, but in the contest between good and evil, in the battle between heaven and hell, in in the battle between God and Satan, those on God's side are winners, and we know it going in. It's the beauty of Christianity. It's the beauty of what Jesus did for us. God's people have always won when they were obedient. Don't miss that point. God's people have always been winners when they have been obedient. Why? Because God has already won. What is it that God cannot do? As we think about our futures, why do we dread the future? What is it that you think God cannot do? Why is it that we worry so much about the future of our families? What is it that you think God cannot do in your family? Why do we worry about the future of our education when we realize that God is in control? What about our business? What about our government? What about our our economics? What about you fill in the blank? What is it that you think God can't do? God has won. And God's people are winners. And we must think and act positively, even in the face of the daunting challenges that our families face. Christians must be confident in their earthly future as well as their heavenly future. We must take God at his word. Joshua and Caleb did that in Numbers chapter 11 and 12. You recall that story? Things looked bleak for Israel against the giants that inhabited Canaan. 
God had told them for generations, I'm going to give you a land that flows with milk and honey, a land that you've never, you've never seen anything like it before in your life, and you're going to love it, and you're going to, you're going to raise families there, and you don't have to go there and, and build anything. It's already built for you. All you have to do is go and take it. And so they sent spies in, and ten came back and said, Oh, we're so afraid. There's no way we, we can, our, our future is, is full of defeat if we try to take this land because of the giants. And Joshua and Caleb said, God said we could. God said we could. He gave it to us. We just have to go and take it. But you remember what happened. The people did not listen to Joshua and Caleb. They, they were afraid. Things looked bleak because of the, the, faces, the, the odds that they faced. God on numerous occasions promised Israel that they would possess the land, but the majority of the Israelites, like many of us, like many Christians today, refused to put their faith in the promises of God. And they predicted their own future. They predicted their own defeat. They were afraid of failure, and that's exactly what they experienced in the form of death while wandering in the wilderness of doubt. They doubted the promise of God. Friends, you and I must be optimists, especially when it concerns the future of our families and the victory that lies before the people of Christ. We can be even more optimistic than Joshua and Caleb. If you think about it, Joshua and Caleb were caused to to focus on their future before Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. They didn't know they had an idea, they had faith in God, but friends, you and I are on this side of Calvary. We know what Jesus has already done. We know and can experience the faith that overcomes the world. What is there to be pessimistic about? When we know about Christ and we know about Calvary and we know about the resurrection, what is there to be pessimistic about? It can only mean that we don't have faith in the promises of God. We're a part of Christ's church. My Bible says the gates of hell will never prevail against that. We're a part of the church. What is there to be pessimistic about? The hope for the future of the family is real. Because the Christian knows that God governs the affairs of men and nations. How is it that God's providence works? I don't know exactly. I I wish I knew more. All I know is that sometimes God doesn't act the way I think He should act. In in my life, uh, there have been things that I thought God should have worked out a different way. There are things that that I thought should have gone differently, should have gone maybe better for me at the time, but God didn't do what I thought He should do. But it's then that I realize most that God is in control. This is when I recognized That God controls the future. And this is why I pray, thy will be done. I tend to look at my future with dread when I forget this fact. There's an Old Testament example that I think that I I have the opportunity to share with my students at school from the book of Daniel. I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. So many great stories in the book of Daniel. And even the story that we're going to read today has so many applications. But there was a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was not a good man. Nebuchadnezzar had more than his share of faults. Nebuchadnezzar was not a man of God, but he recognized a man of God when he saw one. And when he saw what Daniel could do on more than one occasion, he said... Yeah, this God that Daniel serves is the God. He is the creator. He is the almighty. But Nebuchadnezzar had a very short memory. He forgot. From time to time, Nebuchadnezzar would forget what God had shown him already. In Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I built for the house of the kingdom... By the power of my power and the honor of my majesty. Boy, he was proud of himself, wasn't he? We call that an eye problem. He had an eye problem. Look what I have done. Look at my kingdom. Look what I have built. While the word was still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
To thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from man, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomever he will. Nebuchadnezzar, this is not yours. This is God's, and he has loaned it to you. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar that he was driven from men. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him that lives forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way, didn't he? That God was in control. Nebuchadnezzar figured out that when I get proud of what I have done, it's, it's a slap in the face of God, if you will. And God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, you and I have the promises of God. Now, do you believe them? Do you have the courage to put your faith wholly in the promises of God? If you are, the future of the family can be precarious at best, but we know, we know that we can make it. The future of the family is difficult, it's hard, it's a tough road to hoe, there, there's a tough road ahead of us. Make no doubt about it, as you commit your family to God, Satan is coming. The devil is coming after your family because he wants you and he wants your wife and he wants your children. He wants to drive a wedge between you and your spouse. He, he wants your family, he wants your children to, to despise their parents. How in the world, with all the influences that are after our children, how can we make it? We can make it because God said we could. And God is in control of the future. The future of our family has a purpose because God directs every movement. History is not bound by a never-ending series of cycles with God powerless to intervene or to govern. The future is governed by God. Those on earth who fail to recognize this fact are the ones who are doomed to fail and whose future indeed is bleak. But to those who depend on this fact, to those who depend on the power of God and the promises of God, we can look to a brighter future. We can look to a future that is bright for our families, regardless of what the statistics say. Regardless of what the paper reports, regardless of what the Census Bureau puts out or what's happening around us, we can look forward to the future with our families because God said we could. What's right about the family? It's not what's going on in society. It's not what our televisions want us to believe. It's not what the movies or music wants us to believe. It's, it's not what our world, it's not what Satan wants us to believe. What's right with our families is God is in control. Do you believe it this morning? Do you believe it? I want to close this morning with a prayer. Bow with me if you will. Heavenly Father, to you we humbly submit our lives and our spirits and our will. Father, to you we give thanks for the promises that you have made. Father, to you we are thankful for your Son who makes it all possible. Father, give us the courage to accept our future depending upon you. Father, help us to battle the temptations that our, our world throws at us. Help us to dodge the arrows that Satan throws our way. Help us, Father, to, to use you and your word and your Son and your will as the defense Help us to prepare in this life for the life that is to come. Bless our families. Bless our spouses. Bless our children. Bless our parents. Bless our grandparents. Father, in all things in our lives, 
We give you the honor and the praise. And Father, we solicit your continued blessings. Father, thank you for this congregation of your people that meets here at Mount Juliet. We're thankful, Father, for their faithfulness. We're thankful for the work that they do in this community and worldwide. We pray your continued blessings upon them. Bless us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I thank you for this time. I I intentionally made this time short. I I did not want to run into second service. And by the clock, we've not done that. So I've been successful. Uh, My dad used